All right, family. Excellent tour portion. There's so much to discuss here today. Probably one of the most important vital aspects of the Torah portions is shares a lot of information concerning our halakha today, our walk. Amen. So what I want to do real quickly is uh, kind of recap of where we've been so far so we know where we're going, right? That's always important. And what we have witnessed thus so far is a nation that has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm going to keep reiterating this because it's important that we remember. You know, we get so sidetracked with the, with the parashas and we kind of get a little bit of tunnel vision and we forget what we're learning. An entire nation, again, was redeemed, saved by the blood of the Lamb. Okay, we have to establish that because otherwise as we go through these parashas, a lot of this is not going to make sense then. So, and we're going to forget that the Torah from the very beginning is pointing to Yeshua the Messiah. It's another aspect of this. So if an entire nation was saved by the blood of the Lamb, right? And now they're, they're, after they're saved, they're stepping into this wilderness, which is where we're at right now. They're, they're gone into this great wilderness, right? And they're going in a direction. And what is the direction that they're heading? What is the GPS leading them to? The promised land, right? So I, mean, I want you to really, I know this is very basic and elementary, but sometimes just in the basic things answers a lot of questions. And, and it is that in our journey here today, we are, we're heading in a direction too. You know, otherwise, this is kind of redundant. Why are we doing this? But rather, there's a, there's a definite point what we're heading in that is to the promised land. With who? With our king. So we can understand that if that's the case, do we have salvation already? Yeah, we do. We have salvation, right? Yeshua came as the ransom land, right? We, we get that. Are we in the land yet? No. Are we going there? So where are we? In the wilderness. See, this is the stage for us to understand and learn now. Because you see, lots of things are going to happen in the wilderness. Between your exile, or rather, let me take that back. Between the time that you were saved, your redemption, to the time that you stopped breathing, you in this journey. So we need to understand the journey. It's the point that I'm trying to get at. And this is where the Torah teaches us the journey. Amen. So now we're going to go ahead and this week, we're going to start with the parasha Kittisa. Amen. And Kittisa opens up in 30. I want to, I, I actually rather want to open up in chapter 30, 12 says, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Now, right off the bat, when we look at this right here, we see something very interesting. And that is, it's talking about the numbering system. Seems kind of boring because now we're talking about a census, right? And there's something very exciting about the census, actually. And we're going to see why. So let's open up first of all in Hebrew. Opens up by saying, Kitisa et Rosh Bene Israel. So it says, when you take the census to the heads of the sons of Israel. Okay. So let's look at the word kitisa. It is from the word titsa, which literally means what? Nasa, the root word for it is nasa, right? And what? It means to lift. You know, like nasa. It's a little pung there. 
<laughs> I'm just every way. All these guys are rubbing off on me. So NASA, there we go. It means literally to lift up. So what, you know, again, we want to see this. We want to take this in, in small increments in here so you can get an understanding. It means to carry, but it also, the word carries the weight or the understanding of marriage. This is important. Because what do you do? Well, traditionally what was done was that when you marry the bride, you will pick her up and you'll carry her over the doorpost, right? And so it's that understanding, give you a mental picture. Then when he's talking about kitisa, it's talking about lifting you up for a purpose, essentially. But this word in Hebrew and even into modern day Hebrew carries something that's very interesting. And the word nasa also carries the understanding of not just being lifted up, but to claim a depth. This is important. In other words, what it's saying is kitisa, when you lift them up, for the purposes of marriage, at the same time, you are claiming a depth. In other words, the person who's lifting the person up, that individual is claiming that depth of the other, of the other individual. You see the connection of Messiah here. Because didn't he claim your depth? You did have a depth, by the way. Okay? All right, here we go. It's very interesting because Kititsa... Contrary to popular belief, Kitisa doesn't mean census. So the, ta the, the title of this parasha has nothing to do technically with a census. It has to do with being lifted up in the person carrying the death, essentially. Now we're going to see for what purpose, because here's where the census comes in. So let's look at this. To claim a death, to be lifted up. That is the focus of the entire parasha today. I want you to keep that in mind. Because if you've been lifted up, can we all agree that we are betrothed? Carrying the connotation of marriage? Can we all agree that he took our debt? Right? With the bride? Now in here with this set, the Torah portion is going to give us insight of what that looks like. And where are we, by the way? In what location we are when this was given? In the wilderness. Okay, so let's, let's, let's com continue in here to see. We're going to see a prophetic picture of the works of the Messiah here. Because in Hebrew it says, Vayidaber Yehovah el Moshe, it says in Hebrew. Vayidaber el Moshe, I'm sorry, Vayidaber Yehovah el Moshe. So it says that Hashem, yod spoke to Moses, and Moshe that says, Le'omer kititza et rosh b'nei Israel. He said to Moses, you lift them up, and you essentially are going to do the census on my behalf. That's why he says, he spoke to Moses saying, in other words, Moses, remember, what is Moshe? Moshe is prophetic shadow of Mashiach, folks. This is why Yeshua says that in Moses says, or rather Hashem said to Moshe, that I will lift up. He said it. I will lift up someone in your image, essentially, in the future. So the Messiah has to come in the likeness of Moses. As a matter of fact, in rabbinic literature, Moses is a prefigure of the whole thing of Messiah in itself. Because he's the deliverer of Israel. 
He's the one that took Israel out of Egypt. He's the one that, you know, they led them through the wilderness. It's all prophetic, the function of the office of Mashiach, the Messiah. So in here, prophetically speaking, Moses is doing the one who's doing the lifting up. Is that true? Can, what about Yeshua? Did Yeshua not did Yokitisa? Didn't he lift you up? Didn't he took your depth? You see, you have to see this for the way and how the Hebrew gives it. So let's continue in here. Now we see something prophetic concerning Mashiach in here. So Mashiach is the one who is going to take them, who is taking essentially <coughs> this census. But remember, the taking has to do with what? We're lifting him up. Now the question still remains, what is the purpose for their kitetzah, for lifting him up? Here is where it gets really good because in the scripture says, for their number, okay? Every man shall give a ransom for himself, okay, to the Lord. <coughs> when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. In English, really, it can be a bit of confusing when we see this. But I want to share something in Hebrew because for that word, for the number, in Hebrew, it is lifkudehem. Lifkudehem in Hebrew really has very little to do with number, actually. We're going to see in here that the word lifkudehem is from the Hebrew word fakad. And fakad in Hebrew literally means what? To visit. To attend to, to take care of, to provide, and can mean also to enumerate. But when we're talking about numbering then, scripturally and through the context of the Torah, it's talking about for the purpose of visitation. In other words, really the word has such a power punch because it's not just saying uh, lift them up, carry them up, take the depth for one reason, because I'm going to visit. The day of visitation, family. This is very interesting. We're going to see something very particular in here. In other words, to take care of and to provide also. Because in the day of visitation, what the Torah is teaching us is that if we are actually numbered, if we are numbered, that means that there is a covering upon each and one of us on the day of visitation. Making sense now? Let's see this. Let's go in depth in there. So now in Hebrew it says, we understand that. It, Rosh B'nai Israel, when you lift them up, right? All the sons of Israel, the heads of Israel, lift Kudahim for their numbering, right? Now we understand that lift Kudahim means their number, right? But then it says, venat nu ish kofer nafsho. It says that they, each man is to take. This, this verse is really powerful because it says in here, each man is to not new, which is in Hebrew to take, to not just take, but when they're talking about taking is you own it, it's possession. But watch, it says, It says the purpose for that is so that the person can take every man a kofer. What is a kofer? Cover. It's actually atonement. Atonement for what? For his soul to Hashem. 
In other words, it's really, really the way, it's a tricky way the way this reads, because it's saying Hashem essentially, God is giving the covering, but each man has the responsibility to take the covering to Hashem. So it's almost as Hashem is giving you the kofer, and now you have to give the kofer back to him, the atonement back to him. Maze, what is this? Okay, now we're going to see something very beautiful. You see, when we understand this, the letters of Paul will make more sense, I promise you. When we start seeing this in the context of Torah. So let's continue. He says, Kofer le Yehovah to Hashem. So you have to take this atonement that he's giving you to him now, right? Then it says, Bif kot otam. In their big God, remember, in their visiting Otam to them, Bahem, I will not strike them. Negev. Negev is means a plague. In other words, that word Negev is used in Isaiah chapter 56 twice. And it deals with the Messiah being stricken. With the plague because of the sins of Israel. Interesting. So he's saying, Mashiach is taking the negative, the striking. But in here he's saying, essentially, that they will not be hit with the, with the, with the, with the plague when? When I visit them. So it's saying, essentially, the entire verse is saying, basically, that upon him returning back, there's going to be a striking with the plague. And if we are numbered, we are covered, essentially. Prophetic for latter days, folks, when he returns back. Because, you see, contrary to popular belief, when he comes back, folks, he is coming back to strike. I know we don't want to hear that, but the reality is, is the truth. Look, in the Septuagint, it actually reveals and it actually interprets this the right way. Septuagint, remember, is the is the uh, the Bible that was actually translated before three hundred years before Christ came into the scene. So you know the aspects of the Septuagint is more, I believe, more true to the original Hebrew because remember you got the Hebrew from three hundred BC versus the Hebrew today, or even in the days of Mashiach. So it's it's really really interesting. Let's hear how this reads in the Septuagint. That verse, it says, if thou take account of the children of Israel in their serving of them, and they shall give everyone a ransom for his soul to the Lord, then there shall be not among them a destruction in the visiting of them. See, the Septuagint understood that in their visiting them because they understood that this was talking about the latter days. It was already a preparation for the latter days of the visiting of Hashem. Amen. So look what Philippians 2.12 says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, right? Not as in my presence only, but uh, now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation. This is what the person is saying. Hashem gave him the atonement, and they in change are to give it back to him. How? By walking it. This is the verse in here. In the parasha, in the opening of 32... Is teaching us how to walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because that was the purpose. Why fear and trembling? Because in the day of visitation, there will be a covering. In other words, in the day of visitation, there's also going to be a striking, sort of to speak. 
Getting this? So in here, Apostle Paul is talking about walking out your salvation, which comes in agreement with Kitisa in the very opening. And that is that we are to give this to him. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. So now let's look at Kitisa real quickly. And what's interesting of this word in Kitisa in Gimatria gives us the whole thing of Kitisa gives us a total of 731. Gematria, that word. And that word in Gematria means, look, refatim. And what is refatim? It means literally healings. You know, like when you say Jehovah Rafa, he is Jehovah the mender, the healer of Israel. But the question is, because remember in here, we're going into a little bit of remes, kititza. Even though it's talking about which connects, it talks about lifting you up, right? And, and, and providing this protection to you, essentially to take the death of the person. But Gimachia gives us more insight in the word. Now, not a contradiction, just more insight. And what is the insight in here? It's talking about healings. Now, this word in healings comes in perfect agreement with Hosea 11.3. By the way, this is the exact same wording in the Gimachia that connects with Kititza. And it says, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. That word healed them is the same numerical value for Kitisa. So there is a, I mean, it's a beautiful connection because Kitisa means that you've been lifted up. And if you've been lifted up, you've been healed. But the question remains, right? Because we always ask the question and I want to share it here. Look, Rafa means to heal, to cure, to be repaired. Right? But what are we being repaired from? Look, I put in here from what? Because it says, Kititza, I am lifting him up, remember, so that you can be part of the counting. See, here's the problem. For all the people that have a rebellious spirit, this is problematic for you. Because if you don't like authority, you're not going to like being counted. Being counted means you're part of a family. It means there's accountability now. As a matter of fact, if you continue reading that, all the aspect of the counting of the census had to do with accountability. One of the things that the Father is teaching, a side note. But not to go on a, on a bunny trail here, sickening when, with, the, with the teaching here today, I want to reveal that when he says kititsa, he is referring to a numerical value. He's also referring to being cured. And I put in here for what purpose? Look, when you look at the word rafa, it gives us the answer because Rafa also can mean or has to shares the same root of Rafa with a hey, as opposed to a Aleph. You know, this is all Hebrew grammar. So what happens in here? What does Rafa means? To be weak. The opposite. See, Rafa means to heal, but Rafa with a hey means to be weak. Look at this. Was slack. Was idle. And if you are suffering from being idle in your faith not moving look he disheartened it to discourage he came to heal us from our discouragement he came to heal us for being weak meaning being idle he came to essentially hazakas you know what do we always say at the end of every tour of every uh, uh book that we finish hazak hazak many hazak be strong and be encouraged he came. So in Kititsa, the purpose of being lifted up. Now, this is all for each and one of you. Because all of you have come under the senses of the God Almighty, of Israel. 
Baruch Hashem for that. Now we need to understand that we have a responsibility because we've been healed and we've been cured, we've been repaired from being weak, from being slack and idle and being discouraged. I will submit to you today that many people in the body are still walking discouraged. Well, then have we, have we accepted the healing of God then? Because it's there. You're getting this. Many of you are still very slack and idle in your walk. You know, you're still professing, I've been saving, that's it. It's good enough for me, Dainu. He doesn't want that. He wants more, folks. See, we need to break out of our routine. That's what the Father wants us, especially folks in these latter days. I mean, look at the, the stuff that's happening out there. You know, you don't want to be counting among them. You don't want to be them. Whoring up all the toilet paper for crying out loud. <laughs> okay? You don't want to do that. How do we avoid that? Well, we have to be active, moving. We have to be excited. We cannot be discouraged. We have to be encouraged. And by the way, as we encourage, we're encouraging one another. You have a responsibility for encouraging one another, for lifting one another. You know, if there's a brother who's slacking, who's idle, hey, brother, you need to move. We need, we need to give you some B12. You got to move on. You know, you're too slack. You're, you're stagnant, man. You got to move. This is the purpose. He came not for you to just say, I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus. He came so that now you can be encouraged. And remember, when we talk about Hazak in Hebrew, it means that you are actively pursuing where is my gifting? What does Paul says? Seek the giftings. The giftings are good. Amen. Seek for these things. But many of us are not even seeking it. We're just kind of waiting for God to show it to us. It ain't going to happen, folks. You have to seek it. You have to see where is my role in the kingdom. This is very, very important, family. Especially in light of what we've seen out there today, it's extremely important. John 16, 33 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. But be of what? Good courage. Wow. Guess what? That's what Rafa means. Rafa is to heal you from being discouraged. Now, hopefully this verse will even make a little bit more sense. Because you've been numbered. You've been elevated. You are now called to be encouraged. You are called to not slack around all day. This is the purpose, family. Matthew 24, 13. But he who endures to the end shall be safe. Folks, who's going to be safe? You know, many people ask me that question. So many people have asked me, say, Richard, well, who do you mean? Who's going to be safe? Well, the ones that endure until the end. That's what the Bible says. Are you going to endure until the end? Because you see, the one who's going to endure cannot be a slacker. It's the opposite. The one who's going to endure cannot be discouraged. Has to be very encouraged, right? So look, Deuteronomy 328. But command Joshua and encourage him. Why? Because Joshua has a big task ahead of him now. He has to take a whole nation, not just one person, an entire nation to come into Eretz Israel. So he says, encourage him and strengthen him for he shall go before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you see. Amen. Exodus 31, 14. Let's move on here in the parasha. Now that we get a better understanding 
of what Kitiza is, because this is a set of foundation to make you understand all the rest, because in Kitiza, you've been elevated, remember that, and as you've been elevated, you've been numbered, Ikudehim, right? So now, you've been numbered for the purpose of what? The visitation, so that you don't get hit with the Negev, the plague, upon the visitation, okay? Now, setting that foundation, let's see what the rest of this parasha has to say concerning that. Exodus 31, 14 says, you shall keep my, keep the Sabbath. Therefore, it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. It's interesting that in this parasha, there's so many elements in here, but it's interesting that in this parasha, he reiterates the feast. I mean, he already gave the feast. Why is he mentioning it again? And by the way, this is not the last time you're going to hear about the feast. He continues to mention the feast. And there's a reason for it. We're going to find out here in a minute why. But let's look at this. It says, whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. The Torah, right off the bat, is sharing something very, very, very elementary that today we still don't get. Look what it says in Hebrew. It says, Kikol ha ose ba malacha ve nitreta ha nefesh ha hi mi keref. Wow. In, in Hebrew, it's saying, in all. Hebrew call. Kikol ha ose. All who does, who does work. That is Asa. Oh, well, what is work? Well, we need to go back to Judah to understand a lot of these things. You know, because work is something that for everybody is different. Okay? Brushing your teeth can be considered work. And I've heard that. Okay? So, again, we need to understand the context and we need to go back to Israel to see what is considered work. Please don't try to take this on your own hands and interpret it your own way. You don't own the Torah. Remember that. It's not yours. It's been extended to you, but you don't own it. You don't have the right to reinterpret the real. Okay? So, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Ve'ose. So, it says, Kol ha'ose ba'malacha ve'nitkreta ha'nefesh. So, it says that any person that does any work, it's going to be what? Karat. Karat literally means to cut you off. Not a good word, by the way, okay? It's not brit, where it's covenant. It is karat, literally cutting you off. So there's two words for this. But in the choice word in here, it says that that person, is the person going to be cut off? No. The nefesh is going to be cut off. The neshama. It is the intellect, the mind, in the heart it is the inward person that's going to be cut off man paul's letter should be ringing a bell to you right now because in here the torah is revealing that this people call israel it's all about what's inside see because let me ask you something if you are let's say pork portuguese you have blood Portuguese line, right? How can you be cut off from being a Portuguese? If that's 
flowing in your blood? How, like, how does that work? Do you, you know, get a blood transfusion that pump all the Portuguese blood out and pump new blood in from another race? How does that work? This is a, I am being very facetious, by the way. But the reality is, truly, how, how is it that you stop being Portuguese? Have you got Portuguese? See, Israel has nothing to do with your bloodline. That's why in here it says that the soul will be cut off. He didn't say the, the, the person, but rather the soul is going to be cut off. The nephesh. Look, and it's a very choice word because it says Hanefesh Hahi Mikarev from amongst in the midst of his people, Israel, his soul will be cut off. Why? Because he has profaned the Shabbat. Listen to what Romans this echoes Romans two twenty eight. Now we can understand Romans two twenty eight in the context and how it was given. Look what Romans two twenty eight for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Makes perfect sense because in here it says the soul will be cut off. The nephesh. He is not a Jew who is one who is outwardly nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Okay. This is nothing new guys. We see it in the Torah portion. That the, this great faith called Israel has everything to do with the nephesh. The soul. Inside. That's why the Bible says that even the native born could be what? Cut off. Again, how if you're native born, how can you get cut off? Only if what you stand on is a faith, not a bloodline. Israel is not a bloodline. Israel is a faith. The Jewish people, it's not so much about a bloodline. Now, there's Jewish there are people that are bloodline. But this is not what God is saying in here. God is saying, my interest is not in your bloodline. This comes in perfect agreement with what God says. God is not a respecter of men. So don't use your bloodline as a license to do whatever you want. Or rather, your bloodline, in the same way, to not do something. Goes the same way. Because Israel is a faith. The Jewish people, the Jewish faith. That's why I call it the Jewish faith. Look. Let me share a little bit more on that. So it says, uh, uh, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is not, is that of the heart and the spirit, not of the letter. Okay, what he's saying, the heart and the spirit, that's the nephesh. That's what is translated as your nephesh. The heart, the mind, your emotions, your thinking, everything inside. Amen? Now, look what Hizkuni says, just in case you don't believe me. I'm going to bring a Jewish reference in here. Hizkuni says this. You must observe the Sabbath. The reason that this has been repeated is to warn that anyone desecrating the Sabbath purposely, keyword, right, and publicly will be executed. If he does so secretly, he will be cut off from membership in the Jewish people. Notice what he said. Membership. What is Ephesians says? You're now part of the member of the house of Israel. You have a membership now. You see? You are now grafted in, essentially, amongst Israel. So, because many people ask, well, does Gentiles have to keep Sabbath? Absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I'm, Scripture says if you're a Gentile, the term Gentile means one without God, by the way. Scripturally speaking. Of course, today we have different definition, but scripturally speaking, 
it means a person that has no God, period. I don't know that I want to identify with that. Food for thought. So, he will be cut off from membership in the Jewish people and its eternal future by an act of God himself. So now the Torah takes us to the golden calf, folks. Because in light of all this, it's interesting. It's very interesting that we started. We started with Kitisa being elevated. We have the understanding that it's for the purpose of the visitation. They are in the wilderness, right? This is the, this is the setting, the context and the setting, right? And Hashem now reminds them. Interesting, in this just last verse that we read, Hashem reminds them that, by the way, you could be cut off. Which is the reason why he belie- I believe he reiterated to them, these are my feast. To kind of remind them, don't get too comfortable with your position because you can lose it. And echoing for us today, folks, too many people rely in the flesh. God is saying, mm-mm. Don't think for one minute because you possess a bloodline, you're going to enter. And now we're going to see how this apply. Now that we connect this with the golden calf. Look, Exodus 32 1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed, it says, the key word, delayed. All right? Coming down from the mountain. The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that we shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I want to reiterate something very interesting in here. It says that when the people saw that Moses delayed, how long has Yeshua been gone? Has it been delaying for many of us? Right? I want you to put this in the proper perspective. Because remember, Moses is symbolic of the Messiah. Keep them reminding you this in Jewish thought. So Moses is delayed. Moses went up to the mountain. Where did Yeshua go? He ascended. But he's delayed and he's coming back. So what has happened since the day Yeshua resurrected to, to today? What has happened in that period of time in history? By the way, the wilderness. You see how, how prophetic things are in the Bible? We can see it and be clear about it, folks, and have no confusion. It's very, very prophetic. So let's see this. The word delay. This is a very interesting word. It says, Vaira ha'am ki boshesh moshe. It says, when the people ra'a, re'e in Hebrew, they literally saw, but remember in Hebrew, the word ra'a, when it says that they saw, it's not like they're standing there looking in heaven waiting, but they rather experienced. The people experienced a delay. That's more properly there. Meaning, what do you mean by experiencing a delay? Well, we got to understand the word delay. Look, the word here is ki boshesh in Hebrew. Boshesh in Hebrew is from the Hebrew word bush, which means to delay, Right? And this word also means to, to fornicate. Interesting enough. In other words, in the delaying, I'm going to show you how to think Hebraically. In the delaying, the people experienced fornication. Because there was a delay, they resorted to being ashamed and being fornicated. Now we're going to make sense of this. 
Okay, follow me here for a minute. Because we have a problem today. We don't like waiting. Any more than they did. That's why it says that when he delayed Moshesh, they fornicated. Why? I will submit to you many reasons, but the biggest one is they lost faith. They lost faith because, well, he didn't come down when I thought he was supposed to come down. Hello, false prophets telling you Jesus is supposed to return this date, that date, that date, this date, and every single one of them has missed, right? Now your hopes are broken. Now what happens? You fornicate. So let's look at this. That's what it is. Hate to say it, but, you know, we're creatures of habit, and that is what it is. So let's look in here. Because many of this has been misunderstood. Many people have taken this verse to say, you see, the people of Israel worship another God. But we're going to see something differently here today. Let's see this. In Hebrew, well, uh, rather in 32, one says, now that we understand that the people delayed, so now they, they're growing weary, so to speak. The people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come make us gods that shall go before us. Okay, now remember, keep in mind, they've been elevated for the purpose of what? For the visitation so the plague doesn't hit them. They've been enumerated, essentially. They've been counted worthy. Every single one of you has been counted worthy in his kingdom because you've been enumerated. Whether you believe you deserve it or not, it's irrelevant. He said, I'm counting you. You have a responsibility as you being counted. Remember, walk out your salvation now. This is what he requires of you. That's the only thing he requires. Walk out your salvation. So what happens? Are they walking out their salvation? The first thing they do is what? Fornicate. Now, when we read this in the system of religion that we came out, uh, came out of, teaches us that this means that, look, they went after another God. But we're not doing that. You know, every system of religion never claims that they do, they're worshiping another God. Never, ever. But let's see here in here. So it says that the people gathered together to Aaron. Who is Aaron? The high priest. Okay. So Aaron is symbolic of the leaders. Was Aaron a leader? Yeah. Right? Aaron is symbolic of the leaders in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting. Hazal says that the reason why the people gather around him is because they were going to kill him. Literally. Because her, they, according to Hazal, they literally just got done killing her. Her is one of the ones that was holding Moses' hand up in the battle. So Aaron saw that. And when they killed her, they ganged up around him, cocked back their forty-five, and said... Okay, this is the way it's going to be done. Basically, we're talking the wild, wild west here. Well, it is. Where are they? Yeah, like who's going to stop that? Hey, where's the police? Yeah, but they call 911. You out there. Everything goes, man. So they just got done killing her. Now they gang up around her, and Aaron's like, okay. And how you want it? <laughs> 
come on, we all would have done the same thing, man. For this, the, re the reality is we would have done the same thing. We would have done the exact same thing. You just got somebody just got slaughtered in front of you. It's like, okay, these people mean business. They're not joking. So they gang around him now and say, okay, this is the way things are going to go now. What is that teaching us, folks? Essentially, the people are running the assemblies. You're getting this? In other words, we don't have leaders anymore. We got yes-mans. Whatever the people want, we will give. Amen. You see that? This is very amazing, folks. Because if you wonder what's the epidemic, because we do have a plague out there, but it ain't the coronavirus. <laughs> we got a real plague. And the plagues, unfortunately, are in the assemblies right now. Leaders don't lead anymore because we only, and this is true, folks. This is true. We all know that I'm speaking the truth in here. I mean, if you go to any assembly, if you change the music, you can find yourself as a worship leader out of a job. That quick. Just because you change the music, because the maple don't like it. We experience that. Okay. So again, who's running, the, who's running the assembly? The people or the pastor? Who's supposed to be running it? The pastor. You know, the pastor leads the sheep. The sheep don't lead the shepherd. What we have today is sheep leading the shepherd. And what happens? It comes to the fulfillment of what scripture says, that if the blind leads the blind, well, they both fall into the ditch. Right? So let's see this. Come make us gods, it says, that shall go before us. In Hebrew, it says, Vayomeru elakum. Elohim, it says. The first thing that we're going to see here that's very interesting is that they spoke, that's what it says, Vayimeru, plural, okay? And they, kum, stood up, meaning it is an aggressive matter here. They stood up and says, Aselanu Elohim. Now, the interesting thing about this is that when we look at the word Elohim in there, in Jewish thought, Elohim doesn't equal God per se. But rather, Elohim means more of judges. So, God has a title of Elohim because he is a judge. But it, the Bible is not saying make us a new Hashem. It doesn't say make us a new yod Hey vav Hey. The people did not ask for a new God. The people asked for a new judge. Who was the judge at that time? Moses. Because remember, Moses stood up judging the people 24-7 and leading the people. So we got to understand in the Bible when it first opens, it says, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Elohim in there is used, same way. So let's see this. This word for gematria, the one I highlighted, aselanu Elohim, make us gods in Hebrew. It equals 547, which means in Hebrew, neatsot. This is very, very beautiful because we're going to see something very prophetic in here with neatsot. What is neatsot? Neatsot literally means blasphemy, contempt. In other words, when the people requested, 
when the people when the people said make us another judge they were already in a state of contempt and they were in a state of blasphemy now this is going to make sense here in a minute because who was their judge moses let's get one thing clear who appointed moses god okay now they're saying well eh, moses is dead this is very prophetic folks moses is dead so we need a new judge the system of religion that we all have come out of has said that moses is dead he's no longer important he's no longer valid you see distancing of the torah moses also represents the torah they're saying the torah is dead we need something new and fresh because it's too old and it's been already disvalidated but look let's see this in Da'at Zenim, it says this make us a new judge for us this is what hazal says the people saying this to aaron did not intend for the symbol to be an idol but to be a supreme judge in lieu of moses who they thought had died on the mountain you see so hazal's understanding of this is not that they were asking for a new god but rather they were asking what for a new judge for them somebody that can lead them look this is quite clear from how they justified their request when they said for we do not know what has happened to the man moses who brought us out of egypt so their intent is what i'm trying to tell you their intent in here is not to create a new god number one because that's an error in itself they believe in the god that delivered them they believe they saw him they they saw that they're not that stupid guys they're not saying well we don't want that god anymore let's bow for a new god no they wanted a new judge essentially but what's even better and more interesting this whole thing in here is that this whole making of this new god as we call it this new judge is where their sin and their contempt and their blasphemy is going to come out look when some of them prostrated themselves before that image in 32 8 this also referred to the golden calf as a substitute for moses essentially so the golden calf was a substitution for moses not god gotta get that clear they always revere God, Hashem, yod heh the eternal God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They never stop worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how do we know that? Because in here it says, if you continue reading, it says that make us new gods that will go before us, right? As we have thus so far been reading. Make us these new gods that are going to go before us. Right. Because as far as this Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. Do you know that they created a golden calf? Do you know that the golden calf actually, if indeed it was about God, they would have not called the golden calf Yohebafe. The golden calf had a name in Egypt. But they did not address that golden calf as that name. They called the golden calf Yohebafe. We're going to see that in a minute here. Look. Who was in charge to make gods for the people Aaron essentially right Aaron was a representation of the leaders of the people like I said the people dictated to Aaron what they wanted 
in a sense, the people appointed the leaders, not God. And this is the problem that we have in today. Look what the Sforno says. This is your God, O Israel. These will be for you gods to whom you shall pray for your needs. And you will worship, serve them to attain your desires. What makes it a golden calf is the fact that now, this should ring a bell, folks. This golden calf, we're only going to pray for for what we want. As opposed to what is the betterment for the community. In other words, we're getting a hint of prosperity gospel here is what I'm saying. See, this, this now we're going to change it. You know, now that Moses is dead, we got a new judge. Remember, Moses is prophetic of the Messiah. So this, this Messiah is dead. We got a new Messiah. And this new Messiah, we're going to mold him according to our likings. And by the way, we're going to call him Yohevave. Are you getting this? Look. And Pirkei de Rabbi Elizar says this. The Egyptians were carrying their God and they were singing and uttering hymns before it. And they saw it before them, meaning Israel. Remember, there was a mixed multitude there. So what uh, Hazal is saying that the people, the, the mixed multitude. By the way, the mixed multitude was not just Egyptians. There was people from every country. So let me, let me, let me eh, put this in the right context. What you have in the wilderness is a mixed batch of faith and religion in Israel. Because every, every country had its own different way of worshiping. So you had some that were from Egypt. You had some that were from the Amorites, the Jebusites, all these different things. So look what he says in here. Make into us a God like the gods of the Egyptians and let us see it before us as it is said and make us gods. In other words, they wanted to mimic what the nations had. Now, I'm going to submit to you today, folks. This may be a shocker for you that every nation under the earth had a savior. Every nation under the earth had a messiah. This is why they said, make us new judge, a new judge, a new Moses. They understood what this meant. Make us a new Messiah, essentially. They will go before us because Moses is dead, essentially. We still love Hashem. We still worship God, but we want to change Moses. Is it ringing a bell? Look. 2 Timothy 4, 3, 4. For the time will come when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. Well, that was the time when they were in the wilderness. There was no sound doctrine at that point. Look what, uh, continue on in here. But according to their own desire, remember what uh, Hazal says, that now this new, this new judge or this new Moses that they're creating is going to be according to their prayers and how they want and their own desires. <laughs> it's echoing what Timothy says. Look, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. What happened here in the wilderness? They gather around Aaron and they created a new teacher according to what they wanted. You get in this family. And this is huge. This is huge. I mean, it, it really should <laughs> ring a bell on what we are dealing with today. 
because I'm going to go here and let you know right now that for many of you who are trying to talk to your family members about Torah and all this stuff and you're kind of wondering why is it that it's not being received it's because you're dealing with a golden calf hate to say it but it's a whole different image we see the foundation in here they changed it completely so when you bring Torah uh, what is that they're not going to get it it's one of my point so don't be my point that I'm trying to say is don't be discouraged if you go to a brother out there you consider a brother and say you know what this is this is the truth guys I want to share this with you and they literally shun you out because you're competing against a golden calf you competing against this right here. You see this image that was created, started there, and here we are now in the future. This is the product, the byproduct of it. So let's see this. They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now you may be saying, Richard, well, you know, you got to read that in context. Well, we're showing it how it connects to the wilderness, but okay, if you don't want to accept that, better yet, let's get into the Greek. Because it says in here, they will not endure sound teachings. The question is, what is sound teachings? See, it's all based on, it's all subject to context, right? What is sound teaching? Timothy in here, Apostle Paul said to Timothy in here, that they will not endure sound teachings. So let's look at this through the eyes of the Torah or scripture. Proverbs 4.2, what does it say? For I give you what? Do you know that that word for good in Hebrew means sound? So we can read that. For I give you sound doctrine. Proverbs 4.3. And what is sound doctrine? Do not forsake my law. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back real quick. They will not endure sound doctrine. What was Paul thinking here? You think that he knew Proverbs 4.3? And that the understanding and the culture of that time met Torah? Yes. This is why in here it says it. Do not forsake my law. S let's continue on here. But according to their own desires... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. So they're going to heap up for themselves teachers in the latter days, and they will turn their ears away from what? The truth. Now, we just went back up here, and we heard, and we saw that sound doctrine means do not forsake his law. That's sound. Now we're going to see truth. What is truth? Psalms 119, 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. I love it when the Bible speaks for itself, folks. It defines these terminologies for us. We don't have to do it. It is all done right there for us. So, again, goes back to the understanding of this. The wilderness, what did they do? They heaped up a new teacher and it was against what Hashem had commanded them. See, this is what, uh, and Timothy here is being addressed. What is addressing here in Timothy? The golden calf, essentially. 
Exodus 32, 5. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to who? The Lord. He didn't call tomorrow is a feast of the God of the bull of Egypt. He didn't call that name. If he would have said that, then we had something to argue here. Yeah, they, made, they literally turned aside to another God completely. But we don't see that in here. They were still worshiping God, folks. Look, in Hebrew it says, Vayomer Hag. Hag le Yehovah Machareses. What do we say during the feast? Hag Sameach. Because this is, has to do with the feast, right? Oh, this is not good, guys. This is not good in any way, shape, or form. That word machar, it means tomorrow, by the way. So they say tomorrow, a feast, le Yehovah, to God, Hashem, the God of the Bible. Okay. How many times we see people committing literally feasts that are an abomination to God, but we're doing it for God? Huh? It's to God. Okay. How did that work out for Moses? I mean, how did that work out for the people? Because it says that when he heard it, he said, get down there. Because the people love me so much. No, they have defiled themselves. Did he accept it? No. So what makes us think that today we can accept it? Oh, but we can. You see, because the system of religion has taught you that through one man, now you don't have to. Okay, that's a golden calf. See, this is what happened here. It's a golden calf, folks. This is, this is the wrestling that we, I want you to understand. I'm not, I don't mean to pick on people here or religion or whatnot, but we do need to understand what we're fighting against. I am so tired of people coming or getting emails or calls from people saying, well, I went to this person and they didn't accept it. And da, 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 da. You know, I came to this brother. I'm sorry. It's not a brother. Sorry to say it to you. No, it's not. It's a golden calf. It's completely different than God. We have to awake, folks. We have to awake. What did Yeshua said a brother is? Because so you don't have to take my word for it. The one who does my will. And what is his will? His law. Obedience. So I'm sorry. Based on Yeshua's own word. We don't, I'm very quick. I'm very, very careful who I call a brother. Okay. I need to see your fruits to know whether you are a brother or not. Because guess what? If you're really not a brother, you can become an enemy. Okay. So let's be careful with that. Because when we start calling brother, now we think, oh, we're part of the same faith. No, we're not. We're not part of the same faith. Because that one right there that you call brother may be the one who's going to turn you in in the latter days, folks. Because he's not a brother. But you call them a brother. See, again, words of Yeshua. All words of Yeshua. Look what Sfornos says in here. They were forbidden to serve other. Now, listen to this. They were forbidden to serve other, I mean, other gods together with Hashem. Second commandment. My guys, remember? When we went through the commandments, what was the second one? Ahare. The word ahare means together with. They're not abandoning God. They're just including all these other practices in the name of God. This is what he says. No. It's a no-no. So what was really happening in here? 
They were coming. I'm going to put it in perspective, in real life perspective. They were coming saying, we want to honor the creator of heaven and earth. Yorhe his name. Yorhe But now we want to do it our way, through the golden calf. See? Through the golden calf. Not through obedience. Through the golden calf. Folks, whether you like it or not, you serve a holy God. And he will not accept anything less. Look at the answer in here. And the Lord said to Moses, go get down there, basically. For you, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have what? Corrupted themselves. Okay. Were they serving him in their hearts? Yeah. In their hearts, they were doing the right thing. I, 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 you got you to gotta extend you know, the benefit of the doubt here. I'm sure that a good portion of them didn't feel that they were doing anything wrong. Any more than people today feel that they're doing anything wrong. You know, we're still serving God, man. You just need somebody to lead us. This is, this is what we're saying. Look. They have turned aside quickly, it says. Turn aside quickly. Out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a, mo a molded calf. You know what it's, it's telling you right here, folks? You know, when you read the Bible, 9 out of 10, it gives you the answer right there. What does it mean when you turn aside from the commandment, when you decide, I don't want to follow what God says, you're essentially building a golden calf. He's giving you the answer right there. They have turned aside from my commandment and they have molded a calf. So, to turn aside from his commandments means that you're building a go your own golden calf. That's scary, isn't it? We can build a golden calf very easily, folks. So many people read through this and never, ever see the relevance of this. Look, they have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Hebrew says, Sarur maher mean haderech. <laughs> you know what is haderech in Hebrew? The way. Do you know what was the, the sect of the first century believers called? Popular contrary belief was not Christians. The way. the way. What is the way? Here it is. The way, folks. And the way is a narrow path. It's not wide. You cannot incorporate your belief into it. You got to follow this exact, exact path. This pattern right here. Maher min derek from literally assess from the way. Look, saru means to depart from. Look, a degenerated branch. Wow. Because there's a lot in Bible talking about the branch. It is a degenerated branch, literally. When we depart from his ways, you are literally removing, look, it even carries the understanding, Saul, of leaven. <laughs> We're just about to partake of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. To be leavened, to be degenerated, to be defiled. So don't depart from the way. What would Israel do? They departed from the way. The way. This is important, family. I'm almost done in here. Almost. So look, we're going to conclude now with this, the new covenant. There's a new pattern here that's very beautiful.
Because you see, let me, let me lay it down for you. I don't have time to go into details, but I did want to present this before we close out. Because Israel is redeemed. They're saved. They go to the wilderness. Hashem gives them his word. Moses goes up. Moses is a prophetic of their Messiah. He's the one that's leading them. Moses goes up. They think he's dead. Now they create a new golden calf. A new Moses. Not a new God, a new Moses. Okay? Because our Messiah, the Messiah that's being preached today is not in the likeness of Moses. I don't know if you noticed that. The Messiah that you preach today is in the likeness of Rome. Not Moshe. So, what happens now? Well, they messed up. So what did Hashem say? Kill them all. No. He doesn't say kill them all. He say, okay, this is what's going to happen. Exodus 34, 1 and 2 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Notice what he says. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. But notice what he said. Write the words that were in the old tablets, put them in the new tablets. He didn't say, well, you know what? They completely messed up, Moses. Can we just set up a new regulation? Let's just forget about old stuff. Let's start something new here. Take down something completely new that they never seen. No. He said, write what was in the old, put it back. See, because contrary to popular belief, folks, God is not going to make himself less holy for you. You are going to step up and learn holiness. His word is forever. He's not going to change his mind. And by the way, God has not screwed up. Because that will indicate that the creator screwed up. He gave something that people couldn't keep it. Okay, you screwed up, God. Just go ahead and make something new for them. No, no, we screwed up. And we need to make it right with him. Because remember, you've been elevated. You've been elevated. The debt has been taken. You have a responsibility to walk out your salvation. And now he is showing it in here. It says, so be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. What was, you got to understand, folks, that when Yeshua died, what did he do? He ascended up to the heavens. It says that he went up and took the blood and took it to the Holy of Holies. His own blood. And upon doing that, he came back down, though, because it says that he was seen for 40 days afterwards. So that going up, that going up, folks, was a representation of the new covenant to bring the Torah now to people's heart. Look, Jeremiah 31, 30. But this is the covenant that I will make with them in the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. What happened here in Sinai? What happened? He went up. And he said, make new tablets and take the ones that were, the, the words that were in the old one, put them in the new one. New one. What is Jeremiah 31? I will take my words and I will put, write, take my law and put it in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's the same thing, folks. You see, we see a shadow in here when Moses went up again. Instead, instead of God saying, you know what, kill them all. God didn't say kill them all. God just said, now let's renew this covenant. You see, there's a shadow here, and actually not a shadow. It was little. He renewed the covenant right here with them. Because if there was not a renewal of the covenant here, Israel would not have existed. Actually, it would have ended right there. 
everything. The book would have ended there. The Bible, we would have never passed Exodus chapter th uh, 34. The Bible would have ended there. And Israel died. And that's it. <laughs> it's true. No need, no need for more books. Israel's dead. But we see that there's a renewing of the covenant here. And that renewing in here is revealing. It's taking the same words. But instead of putting it in the, from the old tablets, he said, put them in the new tablets. The New Testament gives us the interpretation, the tablets is your hearts. So that you may walk it and be able to fulfill his calling. Amen. So we're going to kind of follow along with this theme of this morning, Torah portion. And it is the building of the golden calf. And why I feel this is so important, because... The standard that was set there or the foundation for understanding this golden calf is going to explain a lot of future events in the Bible that we'll be able to hopefully uh, better interpret in case being here in 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, I want to first and foremost give a little background just on Elijah and understand the, cu the cultural setting of what was taking place at that time. Um, this would have been, of course, a period of time after the, the nation of Israel was divided. This would have been after Solomon's days. This would have been when uh, Jeroboam would have taken the ten tribes up to Dan, and Rehoboam would have stayed in Jerusalem along with Benjamin. So we have the splitting, is what I'm saying, of the tribes of Israel. Now, what you're about to witness in here, however, is going to be a byproduct of the sons of Jeroboam, historically speaking. And really, it's important to understand that why. And I didn't put it in the slide here, which I should have. Because when Jeroboam took the ten tribes to Dan, guys, I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, when they got to Dan, he set up altars in Dan for them so they didn't have to go back to Jerusalem. And upon that period of time in history, Scripture says that when he set up the altars in, in Dan, he said a statement that we read about today. He said, He, O Israel, are your gods. Very, I mean, it, it literally exactly what we read today. Interesting. Now, understand that Jeroboam was a God-fearing man. As a matter of fact, the reason why God chose him is because he had faith in Hashem. Otherwise, Hashem would have never given him the ten tribes. So there's something to be said about that. The fact that he was zealous for God, but yet he created all these idols and caused them, here are your, here are Israel, are your gods. Very similar to what we read today concerning the golden calf. So what the, basically what the Jeroboam did, he built a golden calf for them. You see? By now allowing him to go back to Jerusalem, he created something that was different for them. And call it the faith of Hashem. See, this is why we need to be careful with this, folks. Because everybody throws the word God out there very, very quick. It's a very common saying. God, 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 God. Yeah, we believe in God. Da, da, da. But the problem is that we fall for it. Don't fall for that, folks. Understand where you stand with that. Now, how we approach this needs to be somewhat different depending on who you're talking to. Uh, I'm not saying for you to slaughter people out there, but rather to understand 
okay, no, we're not in the same accord in here. And you can test people very easily, whether we are in the same accord or not. So let's get into here. First Kings 18, 1 through 39. Facts about Elijah. And again, understanding that this goes, this is a byproduct of Jeroboam. Okay, so Jeroboam started this, and now what well, Jeroboam didn't start, it started in the wilderness, and we see that Jeroboam kind of continues this in the future, right? So here are some facts about Elijah. Number one, Elijah ascended alive to heaven. You all know that, right? And why is that important to know? Because, well, in the latter days, the sages say that Elijah will return back. Well, it kind of makes sense, because you see, in the latter days, the sages say he's going to be one of the witnesses, there's going to be proclaiming a word. We're not there yet. In the near future, Elijah will reappear again. Now, I generally believe this, folks, because he is one in Scripture that never died. God preserved him for something. And think about this. I mean, all the messages throughout Scripture, even up to the day of Yeshua, was the message of Elijah. And so Elijah carries a very important message that we're going to see here that it's going to be prophetic for the future. Now, I want you to look at this story here in 1 Kings as a prophetic event that will happen again in the future. Because it's going to happen again. And I'll prove it to you. It's going to happen again. All right? How's that? I'll prove it. All right? So, let's continue in here. First of all, he ascended light to heaven. He was a disciple of Ahijah. Who is Ahijah? Ahijah was a prophet He's the prophet that came to Jeroboam when he prophesied that the tribes will be split. He was the one that said, and, and he, 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 he tore up the ten cloth, ten pieces of cloth, and gave it to Jeroboam. Okay, this is, he was a, a disciple of him. So why is this so important to understand? Because the prophets are subject to the prophets. Meaning, the prophets need authority. There's too many prophets out here today with no authority. Okay? Understand that. It's very important, folks. Every person in Scripture that spoke, they, they were a disciple of somebody. That's important because why is that important? Because part of what we're doing in these latter days, or not what we're doing, rather what God is doing in these latter days, is that he is restoring all things back. So the restoration of the prophets, because what is scripture says that the, those prophets will prophesy again. Your daughters will have vision. All these things are going to come back, right? But what we need to uh, realize is that every prophet in the Old Testament was subject to a prophet, meaning there was an authority. They were a disciple of. That's why in here, it's, Hazal presents this so we can understand it. He was a disciple of Ahijah, meaning he didn't go off into some wilderness and started prophesizing. And, and you know, God is my only authority. I'm not going to follow nobody else. That's a false prophet by definition, by the way. A true prophet submits to the authority of God. Keep that in mind. All right. Because there's a whole lot of them out there today. There's a whole lot of Elijah's or Elijah wannabes out there today. And the thing is that what they're doing is they're literally twisting the word of God, giving false prophecy. And the thing about it is that they have no accountability. So just be careful who you're submitting to, because that's important in these latter days, folks. It's very, very important. So we know that he was a disciple of Ahijah. He turned the nation of Israel back to the service of Hashem. Now, this is important in connection of what we learned this morning. 
Because what do we learn this morning? That the nation went downfall because of the golden calf. Here in the half Torah, we see that a man is sent, a prophet is sent to bring back the nation. You getting this? Now, why is this important? Let's continue. Because technically, in scripture, every single one of us supposed to carry the spirit of Elijah. Especially in these latter days. You're supposed to be the voice crying out in the wilderness. To do what? To repent. You see? But what are we repenting from? It's a good question. You know, what are we repenting from? So in here, we're going to find out what is it that he's calling the nation to do. In other words, what was happening back then? That it prompted uh, Elijah to rise up and call the nation to repentance and what we're going through to today in the same way. Now, Elijah can be also a prophetic uh, picture in the future of the people, for one, but there will be a true Elijah returning back, and it's the real Elijah. I believe that's going to happen later, later before the return of the Messiah. He will come as a witness. And if he's coming back as a witness to tell the people to what? Repent, then we best to be in that walk. You getting this? This is very important. So, Jewish tradition holds this, folks. Elijah prays for God's mercy on Israel. Okay? Because it is all, at the end of the day, it is all about Israel, folks. The whole scripture was written for the sake of Israel. We need to come to an agreement with that and understand that. He is often God's hidden emissary on earth to help his people and to teach his most righteous servants, according to Hazal. So the spirit of Elijah carries also a teaching ministry, which is to teach the people to return back to Hashem. Now, when we say return back to Hashem, what do we mean by that? You know, what do you mean? I mean, we hear it a lot. Hey, I need you to turn back to God. Right? But we, if we leave that by itself the way it is, we can all interpret that very subjectively. Right? So we need to see exactly in the context, in the spirit, and in the heart, and how Elijah delivered this message. Because this is going to connect. I promise you, folks. Promise you. Give me a minute here. We're going to see how that's going to connect in the latter days. Okay? So, Elijah will proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. So, before the Messiah returns back, before Jesus returns back, Elijah has to announce him first. So, we're going to see him. We're going to hear of him. How is that all going to play out? Well, yet to be seen. But it is going to happen. So, Elijah is going to be proclaiming also the arrival of the Messiah. I will submit to you that in this time and period in history, I, uh, Elijah was already proclaiming the arrival of the Mashiach. Because in Yeshua's day, he proclaimed the arrival of Mashiach. And in the future, when Messiah returns back, he will proclaim the arrival of Mashiach. And guess what? Every single one of us plays a role in that. See, you know, there's the ones who carry the spirit of Elijah. 
And the spirit of Elijah is the one of the one, the voice crying out in the wilderness. Where? Where? The voice is crying out where? In the wilderness. Remember we talked about this morning? That we have that, you know, we got the beginning, redemption, we got the middle, the wilderness, and then we got the goal. Everything in scripture is center in the middle. The wilderness. It's important. Because it is the time where God does all the testing, by the way. So we see in here that in those days, in this day, rather, Elijah was already announcing the arrival of the Mashiach. And in Yeshua's day, the arrival of the Mashiach had come. Elijah was pronouncing it. And now we have a responsibility as a voice before the real Elijah comes up as the spirit of Elijah to, to uh, announce the arrival of Mashiach. The arrival of Mashiach, folks, has to do with the returning back to the Torah. You getting this? This is so vital. It is so important, folks. I don't, I don't really know if you really truly understand the in-depth and the importance of this right here. Look, let's see this. 1 Kings 18, 2 and 4. says, when Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, the famine in Samaria had become severe, says, right? Ahab called Obadiah, who was in charge of the place. Now, Obadiah greatly revered Adonai. Okay, he was one of the servants and he feared God. For example, when Jezebel was murdering Adonai's prophets, Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them in two caves, 50 for each, and supplied them with food and water. What we're witnessing in here, folks, is a prophetic picture of what's going to happen in the time of the oppression in the future. Because the spirit of Jezebel is also very rampant out there today. Oh, you all agree with that one, right? Jezebel is still very alive, folks. She's not dead. Her spirit is still lingering around. And what's going to happen is that the spirit of Jezebel, now we got to understand the spirit of Jezebel. That's one of the functions, I'm not going to go into all the details right now for the sake of timing, but one of the functions of the spirit of Jezebel is to silence the prophet of God. Well, I have news for you, family. There's a whole lot of that happening right now. Because you see, now that the spirit of Elijah has gone forward, because the days of Messiah are returning soon, there's also equally in the other side a force and a spirit that's coming against it. That's, that's Jezebel. See? This is how this works. You know, you know what scripture talks about? That our battles are not flesh and blood, but they're spiritual. Okay, that's what we're witnessing today. We may not understand it. We may not be able to, uh, to, uh, to explain it. And we don't even know what we're fighting. But we're fighting literally spirits, principalities, dogmas. All these things connect with Jezebel. Now in here, we have a servant who's actually helping the people of Hashem. Well, that's going to happen in the latter days too. So I want to share Reuben. Reuben and the prophets share some amazing, beautiful things and connecting what will we learn about today. Okay, because remember, the purpose of the teaching, folks, and I want to make this declaration, I'm not trying to come against nobody. I'm not trying to come against your dogma. I'm not trying to come against, uh, you know, all the system of religions out there. The purpose and the function of why we're here is to reveal the essence and the pure essence of God's word. That's it. Because the spirit of Elijah has to go forward and tell the people to repent for the spirit of, for what? Repent because of why? 
the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? So we need to understand that. The purpose is really, I come really truly with a spirit of wanting to share this because it is important that we understand it and that we don't get, above all, that we don't get fooled out there. Listen to what Reuben has to say in the prophets. Reuben talks a little bit about Ahab. And understanding Ahab is going to make us understand Elijah and all the functions in here and everything that we talked about today. It says, it is remarkable, he said, and inspiring that Ahab, an evil man who thrust the nation into sin and without a fight would not allow Ben-Hadad. You guys know who Ben-Hadad is? Ben-Hadad was the king of, um, not Syria. Uh, Aram. Ben Hadad was the king of Aram. And what's interesting is that later on, this is, uh, this is after the, the half Torah, later on, Ben Hadad came and uh, Ahab submitted to him. Ben Hadad demanded, because of the wickedness of, of, of uh, Ahab in here, he was handed over. Ben Hadad literally demanded him to give him all his goods, to give him his wives, to give him his concubines. To surrender everything to him. And of course, Ahab didn't pull a fight. I mean, he said, sure. Anything that you want, Ben Hadad, I'll just give it to you. I'm not going to fight you, basically. But there's one thing, though. And this is what really brings it, the whole the Torah portion together. There's one thing that Ahab would not surrender to Ben Hadad. And guess what it was? The Torah. It really is amazing. Because he had a Torah scroll, right? He would not surrender the Torah. But yet this man is immersed in idolatry. <laughs> it just reveals what we talked about this morning, folks. That when they built this golden calf, it wasn't a new God. They were still worshiping God. And here, Ahab is completely immersed in idolatry. As a matter of fact, God is so disgusted with him at this point. But look what uh, Rubin says. It says that without a fight, he would not allow Ben-Hadad to take the Torah scroll. And the entire nation, too, would not give up the Torah. So not just, not just Ahab, but the nation in itself. Think about this. You really need to sit down and meditate on this. They were holding to this Torah scroll as if they were actually righteous. In their own mind, they were following what the Torah says, even though they built a golden calf. This is the connection with the Torah today. Because in the wilderness, they say, Here, Israel, here is your God. Say, it wasn't a new God. Any more than it was a new God here. They were holding to the Torah scroll. They were holding to supposedly their faith, but yet they immersed in idolatry. And look, uh, uh, Rubin comes out to saying that not even the people, the nation, would give up the Torah, even though the, the vast majority were idolaters. You see what I mean, family? This is what we need to be careful. Look, often in Jewish history, they say, people who seem to not believe in the Torah. So this is very interesting. And what the commentary that he's going to say here is really, really realistic. He's saying throughout history, uh, people who do not believe in the Torah risk their lives to save it. In other words, what Rubin is suggesting in here is that a good portion of the people in history, in Jewish history, who have died for the sake of the Torah, were not even followers of the Torah. That doesn't even make sense. But it's true. 
You see, we can be so in love. You know, I consider this the letter of the law, by the way. We can be so in love with the letter of the law that we forget everything in the spirit. I mean, we could be immersed in idolatry, but yet we hold it onto the Torah. There's a very awakening, an eye awakening for me either way. The sages teach that because Ahab honored the Torah that was written with the 22 letters of the Aleph Bet, he was rewarded with 22 years on the throne, as Sanhedrin 102b says. That was the only reason why God gave him the, the, the amount of time that he gave him. So the center of the focus of today's teaching, why I wanted to present that so we can get a better understanding in here, is that this golden calf, you can have a golden calf even in Judaism. You can have a golden calf in Christianity. You could have a golden calf in Catholicism. You could build a golden calf in any denomination, my point being. We need to be very careful. The golden calf is our idea who God is, basically, instead of really who he is. So let's go on here. Elijah approached all the people. So now the nation is immersed in idolatry completely, okay? But they don't see that. So Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you dance between two opinions? If Hashem is God, go after him. If Baal, they go after him. May I remind you that this is the same nation that was holding on to the Torah scroll. It's like, why is he saying that? But there's an issue here. Let's see this in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it says, Vayigash, by the way. And it's interesting because when it talks about Vayigash, the he approach, it wasn't just like he approached, you know, in a very, very friendly manner. He approached uh, very, very fervently. In other words, <laughs> he, was ready, he was ready to kill with his tongue because the warning had been given already so many times and the people were not repenting. So we're at this point already. So it says, Vayigash Eliyahu. El kol ha'am, to all the people. Vayomer at matai. He says to the people, at matai. You know, in the translation it says, how long? Right? But at matai, it's not necessarily how long, but rather into when. <laughs> He's saying at matai, into when? Into when? Now let's continue in here. At matai atem. It says in here, Poschim al shetei ha seifim. I'm sorry, ha seifim. So let's look at this. The word in there, when he says, How long will you dance between two opinions? Right? And what's interesting in is, we're going to look at the word here for opinions. First of all, it is Poschim. What feast are we fixing to celebrate? Huh? Uh-huh. Guess what? That's the same word. Because Passover is skipping over back and forth. So he's giving you an idea of how unstable-minded these people were. Because Passover, Pesach means to skip over. So what they're saying is one moment they'll skip over and think this way. The next moment they'll skip back and think this way. Another moment they'll skip over and think this way. Another moment they'll skip over and think this way. You know, something in the good book says about being stable in your mind, right? So let's look at this. So it says, Aten poschim al shatei ha seifim. So let's look at this word ha seifim, im Yehovah. So ha seifim means divided. So it's the word saif in Hebrew. When it says about being divided in two mind opinions, rather, is the word in here saif, which means to be divided in mind and opinion. 
Do we have any of those issues today? Do we have division in our opinions today? Right? Here is now Eliyahu, the prophet, who's coming in the name of the Lord saying, stop being double-minded. Now, there's a good reason why he's calling them double-minded. We're going to figure that out in a minute here. But look, thoughts that divide and distract also. He's coming up to the people who are holding to a Torah scroll, by the way, and asking the people, do me a favor, stop being double-minded. If God is God, Jehovah is God, then let's follow him. But if Baal is God, then guess what? As a nation, let's follow Baal. Why did he say that? Because they're tossing between two opinions. Meaning, what do you mean two opinions? Two forms of dogmas. Remember the golden calf? Here's a connection with the Torah portion. In the, in the, in the uh, Torah portion, they created this, uh, this uh, golden calf. And it says, tomorrow is a festival of Hashem. They instituted, by the way, because there was no feast declared for that day, biblically speaking. So they instituted a whole new feast with a whole new Moses and call it God. Now in here, we see the product of that later on in history. Now in here, Elijah's like, okay, listen, we need to stop. I'm going to say something to you right now. If you're calling upon the God of that Bible, then we need to be following the way he said so. Simply put. No more divided opinion. No, you can't come to, this board, to the God of this Bible and tell me that I'm going to celebrate another feast on his name. That's divided. That's being divided in mind. That's being double-minded, by the way. So hopefully today you leave with a better understanding of being double-minded. We need to understand this because now the prophet is coming in here rebuking the people about them being double-minded. This is not good. So what is the double-mindedness? If Hashem is God, then go after him. Go. By the way, that word for go is halach. Your walk. If he is God, if he is Hashem, then let your walk reflect what the Bible says, essentially, what the scripture says. Don't be introducing things that are foreign. And if Baal is God, then guess what? Then let's just continue with what we're doing and worship Baal. Basically, I don't know if you understand what Elijah's saying. And Elijah's just very bold at this point. Elijah's just saying, listen, if you're not going to worship the creator according to his word, don't even call him the creator anymore. Just say, I worship Baal. That's it. I mean, he's gotten to that point where he's like, you know, enough is enough. You know, like everybody says, we all worship God. No, we don't want to hear it. If we worship God, the God of that Bible, then we're going to worship him in spirit and in truth, as the word says. And this is basically the rebuke that Elijah has for the people of that time. Look, the Hafez Chaim uh, Shemolan 2.1 says this in Chazal. Eliyah challenged them. He's talking about Elijah for Eliyahu. Challenged them to make a choice. I'm going to submit to you that in these last days, because we are in the days of Messiah, folks. And it's just a matter of timing now, and I think it's coming real shorter than we think, that it, it's going to come. So, in the days of Messiah, we need to make a choice. We can no more toss to and fro with opinions. If we worship him, then we need to do what he says. It's, sim it's very simple, really. The word says this, this is what we do. The bare witnessing of the word. So, they need to make a choice. They could not have both anymore i will submit to you that season is over folks the season is over of hanging on to two different 
principalities, two different doctrines that contradict by the world one another. Okay? Everyone knows that idolatry is a terrible sin. Right? But one may rationalize that it is better that an idolater should serve God also rather than plunge headlong into an exclusive pursuit of idol worship. This is not so what he's saying. When one divides, listen to what, uh, what uh, Hafez Chaim says in here. When one divides his allegiance, okay, others are misled into thinking that it is acceptable to adopt a false belief as long as one also observes some of the commandments. Wow. I don't know if you fully understand to the fullness what Hayataim is saying. He's saying that the danger in this is so great because what's happening is we're causing other people into idolatry. You see, when you say I worship the creator, the God of the Bible, but yet you don't do a darn thing he says in his word, or you may do here a thing or two, and that's it, and you mix it with other kinds of worship. Chaim, uh, uh, Hofez Chaim is saying in here that you are essentially being a false witness. And that, in scripture, is grounds for penalty of death. This is, I mean, this is why Elijah is like, okay, we're done. We're not playing this game anymore. Because now the people see the leaders doing whatever they want or following their own doctrine and say, oh, okay, well, it's okay because look, they're doing it. So that means we could do it. So what does this all lead to at the end of the day, folks? This all leads to, well, all roads lead to God. At the end of the day, we all see each other there, guys. You just go north, I go south, you go east and we go west. We'll, we'll find each other in the same path. That's not even possible. North will never match with west. <laughs> all roads don't lead to the same path but what he's saying in here is that if we adopt this it's going to lead people essentially to believe that yeah it doesn't really matter this is the problem so it says in here this can not only deceive the worshiper because that's what it is you're deceiving people but lead others astray as well wow even in these days of the days of Elijah, folks, the people were what? Being led astray. Why? Because of the leaders. Remember what happened in the Torah portion? What happened in the Torah portion today? Aaron was moved by the people. Right? And the people dictated to Aaron how they're going to worship God. Okay, now we've seen the byproduct of here. The worship of Baal. And not just by one or two people, an entire nation, family. Look, this comes in agreement with Jeremiah 56. Look, my people have been lost sheep. Why? The shepherds have led them where? Astray. They have turned them away on the mountains, it says. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. <laughs> and this is exactly what they were doing at that time. Now, the question, and Amos gives us the answer. And here's how is it that the shepherds are leading the people astray? Because, you know, I like to cover all bases because everything is subjective, right? So how is it that people were led astray? I mean, even though we see it in the Torah portion, they, they, they set aside the commandment of God. But let's see more evidence of that. The prophet Amos shares something in here. Thus says the Lord, for three transgression of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the, its punishment. Why? Because they have despised 
the law of the Lord. How many people today literally hate the law of God? I mean, you mentioned the law and they just want to kill you. Seriously. I mean, something comes, you can see the spirit rising on them, man. It's like the eyes get bloodshot. All of a sudden you start seeing veins that weren't there. You know, the color change, they become more redder. <laughs> they, they literally is, folks, test it. People hate the law of God. What does it say in here? Because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them where? Okay, what is it that's leading them astray? Their lies. And what is a lie? Someone who despises the law of the Lord. It's all exclusively giving you the answer right there. You don't have to search for it. One plus two equals three, and well, down we go. It's all right there for us. Well, how is the message of the shepherds today? Oh, we don't have to do the Torah. We don't need the Torah. Who needs that Torah? Torah is dead. What did they say in the mountain? Moses is dead. We don't need Moses anymore. Now we have the golden calf. You see? And that golden calf is what we like. So we're definitely going to follow this one already wholeheartedly because the golden calf pleases what we want. And the message in here today is in the PowerPoint for everything today is the message that Elijah gave to the people. Stop dancing between two opinions. Now we know the rest of the story, right? The fire came down from heaven and he turned the people back to God. Now I'm going to submit something to you today to you that we need to be careful with that too. Because this fire that came down from heaven was to prove to the people at that time they were in idolatry that what? They needed to return back to the Lord, right? And that there was an author, by the way. Now, what's interesting is that the author, even at that time, it was illegal for that author to be there. Because Hashem has said, you are not to put an author. Why, it, why is it that Elijah is erecting an altar in Mount Carmel when that's not even legal, according to the Torah? Right? Well, we'll discuss that next year. But no, listen. <laughs> no, the sages say it very easily that Hashem allows for his Torah to be essentially to set aside the Torah if, if it's for a means to bring Israel back to his covenant. Right. For saving of a life in this case. In this case, it wasn't just a life. It was the souls of an entire nation. So he did it just to prove a point in there. But, you know, we never witnessed that he did that again. But what's interesting about this, folks, is that and there's more to it in the story. But the, the interesting about this whole thing is that we read in the book of Revelation that in the future, the anti-Messiah is going to perform the same miracle. For instance, in the book of Revelation says that he causes many to go astray because of his miracles. Said to the point where he even makes fire come down from heaven. Okay, who was the one that caused fire to come down from heaven in scripture? So this anti-Messiah is going to come as Elijah or a mimic of Elijah. I believe that this anti-Messiah is going to cause the fire to come down from heaven, literally in the altar in Jerusalem that they're planning on building right now. Yes. It's my belief. Not saying that's going to happen, but we do know that fire is going to come down from heaven in Revelation. It says that he's going to cause that. The anti-Messiah is going to do that right there. So the message in here is not to focus so much on the fire, but the reason why. 
See, Elijah was causing the people to come back to obedience. The difference is that this anti-Messiah in the future is going to cause fire to come down from heaven to prove that the law of God has been abolished. And goes back to the, goes back to Deuteronomy 13. Even if they perform a miracle to you, but they cause you to go astray, he is not a true prophet. So don't fall for it. That's what I'm saying. Don't fall for it. And younger generation, don't fall for it. The prophet of God needs to encourage you to come back to his word. I don't care if he causes the whole skies to disappear. It means nothing. You know, Satan can do miracles, folks. He's very good at doing miracles, by the way. And by the way, he has power and authority. This has to be given by God, but he has power and authority. He had power and authority to strike Job and to cause a sickness. He, he had power to do all these things. So be careful in not falling for miracles. The point in the story here was not the fire from heaven. The point in here was leading the people back to obedience to God and showing that Baal was false at the end of the day. Amen. And that is your half Torah for today. I told you it was going to be quick and sweet. Now we're going to finalize with the Idrash for today. Okay. And this is the final one. And that is today, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 and 4. Remember, we need three witnesses to establish what the word of God says. Right. So we already have two. Now we're going to find the third witness in the New Testament. And real quickly here, folks, wow, what can we say about this? This is like everything that we've been talking about today, right? Pretty much. I mean, I really shouldn't even have to comment and teach. It says it all right there. But, you know, yeah, we're done, <laughs> right? But we're going to see something beautiful about this parsha, or uh, this uh, Idrash. And first of all, 2 Corinthians, who's Paul's audience in here? The Corinthian people, which a good majority, if not all of them, are Gentiles. You know, this is the, the church that he built or the assembly, the synagogue that he built. And um, these are people who were coming out of paganism. And, you know, this is pretty much probably similar to the same group in Acts chapter 15. He said, what do we do all these Gentiles now that are coming into faith? And, you know, he gives, he gives them like a few commandments. Let them start with this and then they'll grow. So this is, this is it. These are people who are coming into the faith of Israel who have never grown up with this. So I think we all can probably sympathize with them, right? They've never grown up with this. They've never known anything about the God of Israel. They've never known anything about Torah. All they've known is the idolatry that the nations have been practicing, and that's all that this is all they know. So 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous for you with God's kind of jealousy, since I promise to present you as a pure virgin in marriage. Now, there's going to be a contrast in here in this, in this chapter because now... Why is it that he's saying a pure virgin in marriage? Why? Because they're preaching another Yeshua. So you got to put everything in context. We're going to see how the, the context itself gives you all the answers. We don't have to second guess it. Let's look at this. When he says, present you as a pure virgin in marriage to your one husband, the Messiah. Okay, he's talking about Christ here. Mashiach. But the connection with Mashiach is, what Rashaul is presenting is, that they need to be pure virgins in marriage. Let me give you an example of that. Revelation 19, 7 and 8, for instance. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Okay, this is in the future, folks. Pay attention, because this is not something from the past. This is something that's in the future. Hasn't even happened yet. And look what it says. And his wife has made herself ready. Who's the wife? We are. We are. We are. Yeah. 
the body of Messiah is the wife. But Lord, what it said, let her what? Make herself ready. How do we make ourselves ready for the marriage of the Lamb? Well, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul presented it, that they be pure, virgins to marriage. Okay? Sexual purity. Thank you. Look at this. And to her, who's to her? The bride. To her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of God's people. You see? The righteous act of God's people is the fine linen. By the way, that is the garments of the wedding. What is Paul proposing in here? <laughs> you got to see it, folks. Because we're going to see it now when he contrasts this. He's saying, listen, if you Corinthians, all you foolish Corinthians, what he says, right? Because he spent 90% of the time rebuking Corinthians, by the way. Okay? Because of the idolatry. I mean, this is the truth. This is exactly what happened with the nation of Israel. Idolatry. It's always been a, a problem in Israel. Idolatry. Spiritual idolatry. So he's saying in here, if you are of Messiah, essentially, then this is what you need to look like. See, you need to have righteous acts. You need to be pure. Why? Because the next verse is going to give us the answer. 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceive Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Messiah. Okay, he is concerned now. He's very concerned because now he's saying, after he presents, saying, okay, this is the way you're supposed to look like, pure, white garments, ready for the wedding, righteous acts, following the Torah, essentially. He's saying, but there's a problem. We're not witnessing that. He wasn't witnessing that back in the days of Corinthians. So what happens in here? Let's look at this word because he said, I'm concerned now. Okay, he fears, it says, that you're going to be deceived, just like Eve was deceived, right? Because of what? The simplicity. What is the word simplicity in Greek? It is haplotes in Greek, and it literally means the virtue of one who is free from pretense and dissimulation, not self-seeking, essentially. So, when we're talking about the simplicity in Messiah, it's saying that the body of Messiah cannot be self-seeking. It needs to be essentially transparent. It needs to be like that of a child. We need to have the innocence like a child, essentially, or carry that kind of spirit, essentially, to be very simple. Why? Because we as human beings, we love to complicate things. You know, I'm proud that I'm a white. Because, man, whites are simple. Whites is good. I like white. I'm glad I'm white. Because it's true. It's simple. We make things so hard. Simple. Can we just keep it simple? And this is the whole thing. This is what he's saying in here. Why do we complicate things so hard? You know, God said, do it this way, do it this way. We sit here and we analyze it, and we just turn that into a whole algebra now, uh, you know, equation. When it does, or trigonometry for that matter, you know, it, it doesn't need to be that way. It's very, very simple. 
You know, we need to detach our minds from the complexity that we have. Back to simplicity. Simple works, guys. Simple works. I'm telling you. And the only way you can understand Messiah is if you're simple. Honestly. Be simple. Yes. So, let's see here. For if, if he who comes preaches another Yeshua, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit... That's a big one. Why does it say if you receive a different spirit? Because if you're preaching another Yeshua, it's not really the same one now, is he? It's a whole different one. That's why it says another. We're going to get that to a minute. But if you're receiving another Yeshua, then you are guaranteed to receive another spirit. Because it's not the same character. The golden calf, even though they call it Yehovah, was not Yehovah. I don't care what you call something. If it's not what it is, it's not it. Right? It doesn't matter what you call it. It has to carry the character traits of the individual. So in here, that's what they're saying. I'm afraid that you're going to receive a different spirit. Well, let's analyze that for a minute, folks. Because how many people slain in the spirit are denying Yeshua, technically, by saying the Torah is no longer valid? Oh, I heard it all, guys. I've been, I've been around religion for a long time, so I, I, I've been around circles. A lot of congregations. So here's the thing. If you, if, you, if you just got filled with the Holy Spirit and you did backflips, and that same day you declare, well, we don't need the Torah, then what spirit did you receive? Amen. As a matter of fact, I had a person to tell me once, well, I received the Holy Spirit every Sunday. I said, well, that's good. Baruch Hashem, you know. I didn't say Baruch Hashem, but that's good, right? And uh, we were talking about Torah and all this, and so happens to be that we were talking on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. So they were they weren't you know they were in their congregation, they were at the gathering Sunday morning, obviously. Sunday afternoon, I was talking with them, and their their whole defense was that the spirit they receive it every Sunday, they receive the Holy Spirit. And that, that spirit has not convicted them to follow the Torah. Little do they know what they're confessing to. Amen. Amen. And at that point, I said, rolling out. Rolling out. See ya. But you see, it's true though. See, because if you change the character of God, everything else changes. Everything. Guys, even the giftings and the spirit changes. Like I said, Satan is a master counterfeit. How do we need to know? We need to know his word. We need to know his word. So it says, if you defended, uh, receive a different spirit, which you have not, which we have not received, or a different gospel. Well, has the gospel changed? Well, absolutely, folks. Because if we match the gospel preached today, it's certainly not lining up with the gospel of Abraham. And Galatians says that the gospel was already preached to Abraham. Right? So, here we got it in a nutshell. If you change Yeshua, you change the spirit. If you change the spirit, you change the gospel. That's the progression. That's how it works. So, can we honestly be fair with one another here today? Have we been doing a good job in spreading the true gospel of Yeshua throughout the world? No, we cannot honestly say that we have. Because if we're preaching a gospel 
And I hate to say it, but if we preach in a gospel that advocates lawlessness, it's a gospel of a golden calf. Not the one true God, folks. This is, this is very, very important, folks. For the times that we're living, it is, in, in, uh, it is imperative that we understand this. Look, let's look at this. Another Yeshua. How about that? The word there for another is Greek, alos, which means another or something different. It comes from the Hebrew word, acharei. We learned this when we learned the commandments, when God gave the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai. What was the second commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You guys remember? What was the Hebrew word for acharei? Something together with. Remember? We learned that today in the Torah portion and the Haftar. Something together with. They were mixing worship. They were not denying God. They were just mixing uh, a foreign worship with the one true God. So here we go. Another Yeshua, in a sense, is saying a Yeshua that it's what? That comes with foreign worship. Right? Not the one prophesied by Moses. Because remember, the Yeshua of the Bible, the salvation of the Bible, has to come in the likeness of Moses, folks. If he does not come in the likeness of Moses, you need to X him out completely. It's a false one. It's a counterfeit. See? So, remember, this word is also used in the second commandment. Now, what does this another Yeshua have to do with the golden calf? Well, you guys remember in the Torah portion? They didn't deny God. They just changed Moses. Moses is symbolic of the deliverer of Israel. Who's the deliverer of Israel? The Messiah, Yeshua. They changed the deliverer. That's all they did. Isn't that what today we are witnessing? We have changed the deliverer of Israel. Not God. God still saying God still stays as God. He's not changed. We have changed the deliverer in a sense, which is the one who intercedes before God. So Exodus 23, look what it says. You shall have no other together with gods before me. Now, you really want to hear something amazing about this? That in Hebrew, this is amazing. In Hebrew, it says that you shall not have no other gods. That word there is Elohim. In a sense, that verse can also be read, you shall have no other judges before me. Moses. In other words, any other judge outside of Moses, you shall not have. See, you guys remember, Elohim doesn't mean Hashem. Elohim is not equal to Hashem. Hashem has a title for Elohim, but they're not one and the same. Elohim can mean judges. We, we use that terminology throughout the Tanakh. The, the kings of Israel were known as gods, by the way. Elohim. It's, it's a common word. It doesn't mean that you're practicing idolatry. If you call somebody a god, it, was, they were, it meant a judge, essentially. So the commandment in here, in a sense, is saying you should not change the judge of Israel. The deliverer of Israel, essentially. And unfortunately, we have broken that commandment, folks, because we have, unfortunately, have created another judge. So we're going we're gonna to finalize it here with this, folks. I want to share something with you, hopefully. Here we go. So we got the Messiah of Israel, and we got the Messiah of the system of religion of the nations. Okay? We're going to do the contrast so you can see what this looks like in real time. 
right? So let's start with number one. The Messiah of Israel taught Jewish principles because he was known as the King of Israel, the King of the Jews. These are all titles they were given to him in the New Testament. The Messiah of the system of religion, the nation, teaches anti-Jewish principles. Okay, second one. The Messiah of Israel established the law of Moses. The Messiah of the system of religion came to do away with the law of Moses. The Messiah of Israel came in the likeness of Moses. The Messiah of the system of religion came in the likeness of the Roman Savior. The Messiah of Israel taught repentance from lawlessness. The Messiah from the system of religion advocates or enforces disobedience to the law of Moses. Okay, how can we say they're the same? I mean, that's just a little small recap. How can we say that's the same? That's like saying 6'4", blue eyes, blonde hair, to 5'3", bald-headed, with a big belly. It's completely different. I mean, seriously. You, it, it, this is a whole different person. See the difference? One is a golden calf. This is a system. Now, let's share this because we're not going to just stop here very quickly. Now, with that in mind, connecting it with the half Torah and connecting it with the Torah portion this morning with the golden calf, Daniel has something to say about that. Look, Daniel 7.25 says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Who is he talking about? The anti-Messiah. Not the Messiah, the anti-Messiah, the anti-Christ. What is the anti-Christ going to do? He's going to speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High, the Holy Ones, right? And what else is the Antichrist going to do? And shall intend to change the times and what? The law. His intent will be to change the times. By the way, you know what the times there in Hebrew is? The Moedims. The feast. And the law. Do I need to say more, guys? You know, honestly, because if you're telling me that you worship a savior that took away the law, then I'm afraid to tell you, you are worshiping an antichrist. According to scripture, there it is. Don't get mad at me. You go ahead, when you see Daniel, you yell at him. Because he wrote it. He gave, us the, he gave us the description of what an antichrist is going to look like. Okay, that's i.e. a golden calf. You getting this? Look. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Now, we're not going to get into this whole thing with Daniel because this is just talking about future prophecy. But it does advocate in here that in the future time, there will be one who will arise and he is going to be persecuting. Guess who? He's not going to be persecuting those who are breaking the law because that's what he's advocating, guys. <laughs> he's not going to persecute. If, you're not if you don't want to do the law, guess what? You're going to have a great time because the Antichrist is going to love you. He's not persecuting you. He's only going to persecute the ones who are following the law. Which side of the fence are you in? Which side of the fence are you in? Be careful. Which side of the fence we end up, folks? So look, I'm going to finalize with this. Jude 1.4.
For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men. By the way, that's the opposite of godly. Right? Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into what? Lutness. Wow, if that doesn't speak it more clear, I don't know what to say. They ha- what is lewdness in Greek? Without law. Yeah, it's lawlessness. In other words, what Jude is presenting here, or rather suggesting, is that these people are using grace as an excuse for lawlessness. Oh, by the way, and these people are what? Ungodly. You see? Let's continue here. And deny, in the process, deny the only Lord, the only Lord and God and our Lord Messiah, Yeshua. What Jude, Yehuda, by the way, is suggesting in here is that if we are turning God's grace as a means of lawlessness, essentially you are denying Yeshua. Wow. If we're turning grace and we're taking the grace of God to make it into, you know, into lawlessness, we are essentially denying Yeshua. But that's what it's saying. Yes. So you deny him. Now, it's the same. Now, I'm going to throw a curveball here at you. It's the same. Let's go now to the side of the fence. It's the same if you keep the Torah, but deny Yeshua. You notice how that works? So you can use a very, 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 very much so grace as a means of denying Yeshua. And in the same way, you can be very legalistic and deny Yeshua. See? Hopefully, you know, I saw it that way. You can see it just after today. You can see it that way. So by, the, by preaching a lawless Messiah, you essentially deny Messiah. Keep that in mind. Very, very amazing. So Dr. David Stern actually has a commentary on this that I wanted to share with everybody concerning this whole turning grace into lewdness. So you don't think that I'm the only crazy one. At least I got somebody that's crazy with me. So Dr. David Stern says, this is a clear from verse 4. What the ungodly people do is not merely pass on mistaken information, he says, but pervert God's grace into a license for debauchery and disown our master and Lord. This is back what I was just telling you. We deny him when we are preaching a lawless grace. And here, Dr. David Stern coming in perfect agreement. So it says, they no longer recognize Yeshua's right to command obedience, but teach instead a perversion of Romans chapter 3 8, a perversion of Romans 3 8, and Ephesians chapter 2 8 through 9. That a person is considered righteous by God on the grounds of professing faith in Yeshua, regardless of what sort of works he does. Wow. In other words, what he's suggesting in here is that that statement, people are using it as a means of not having to follow obedience. Isn't that true? And these are things that I think all of us have witnessed and we've seen. Well, this is a no-no. Look, 
such look what he says such an attitude such an attitude quickly results in debauchery think about it folks if we take that verse for the way it is without putting it in a proper context and without any support okay then let me ask you something folks what's the purpose of the law then why why do we need to be obedient i mean if we just got to profess and we're already in heaven then technically i don't have to do anything this is what he's suggesting in here it gives birth to that and rightfully it has because why do something why put myself through that yoke if you want to call it when i'm already in there <laughs> right well it should be it should be you see and, and and yes in a perfect world that should be the motivation so it's saying here that this will result in debauchery as well as other kinds of antinomianism against the law you see this is really really amazing because to me this <laughs> speaks in volume look since it removes the ethical and moral component of faith essentially in other words now you follow a faith that's really empty there's no substance to your faith it is not tangible it is abstract in other words you follow an abstract faith which is why we are where we are today folks it's abstract we don't know whether we're coming or going, so tell you the truth. Because we can do whatever. Exactly. So we're going to finalize today's teaching with John chapter 4, 22. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Who spoke that? Yeshua himself, folks. Who was he addressing? We've mentioned this a bunch of times, but, uh, but we need to recognize because, by the way, this woman in the well was a byproduct of Jeroboam. Just like the people here in the first Kings during the time of uh, uh, Elijah and the Baal, the Baal worshipers. Same thing. Same thing, folks. So at the end of the day, folks, we need to, in this time, in this season, God has called his bride to awaken. There's a lot of things happening worldwide right now, folks. There's a shakening that's taking place. I can tell you that right now. There is a shakening that's happening. Something is shifting in the spirit right now. And if we don't awaken, folks... It's not going to be good. So let's return. Let's humble ourselves. Let's be simple. The simplicity. Let's keep it simple. Let's trust in God. Let's return back to his word. Let's be a word. Let's be the voice of Elijah in the wilderness crying for the people to repent and to return back. Amen. And that is the Idras Meshes for today. Amen. Blessed be his name. Adonai Vishmrecha
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the name of the Lord be upon you forever. Amen. Thank you for being a part of our teaching. Be sure to visit our website at www.thefoundationoftheword.org for additional resources and to help us financially. It is our hope and desire that what we teach will help you in your walk with Hashem Elohim, that we bring more souls into His kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.